This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. I want to continue the theme that I uh, spoke of when I opened Sushin. Um, I talked about the individual journey for each of us. I used my particular experience, but it's applicable each in its own way of taking the specifics of our life and helping us wake up. So I want to work with the Diamond Sutra, a section from it, the Diamond Sutra is um, a fundamental sutra, uh, particularly within Zen. It's also, incidentally, the oldest printed manuscript book that exists. It was discovered um, in a cave in China, I think in the 600s. I may be a century off, but... Uh, um, And the Diamond Sutra addresses the illusion that inside of every one of us is an immovable, fixed sense of being called me. And we all have that. We have that sense of ourself. But what is it? I mean, it's a given that we have it. But what is it? So... A section towards the very front of the Diamond Sutra. You, you could pick up any section and spend a long time with it. Uh, says, uh, um, has Sabuti asking a, a question. Uh, Sabuti is kind of the foil of the Diamond Sutra, but also a wise one. He said, world honored one. The sons and daughters of good families want to give rise to the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind. What should they rely on? And what should they do to master their thinking? Now, the word master may have a slightly different connotation than um, in the context. But to, to... to master in a different sense, to, to not be caught by, by the thinking. So that's, that's what the Buddha is going to address. That's the question. If you want to give rise to the highest, most fulfilled, awakened state, what should they rely on? And what should they do to master the thinking? And the Buddha says to Sabuti, This is how the bodhisattva mahasattvas master their thinking. However many species of living beings there are, whether born from eggs, from the womb, from moisture, or spontaneously, whether they have form or do not have form, whether they have perceptions or do not have perceptions, whether it cannot be said of them that they have perceptions, or that they do not have perceptions, 
we must lead all of these beings to nirvana so that they can be liberated. Yet when this innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings has become liberated, we do not, in truth, think that a single being has been liberated. Why is this so? If Sabuti, a bodhisattva, holds on to the idea that a self, a person, a living being, or a lifespan exists, that person is not a true bodhisattva. And obviously there's much more. This is at the start of the Diamond Sutra, but this is what I want to work with. So before the formal Diamond Sutra starts, there's an opening gatha. an introduction of what the sutra is going to examine. And this is what it says. And it's speaking to you, to me. How, we, how may we overcome the fear of birth and death and arrive at the state that is as indestructible as a diamond? What way can direct us in our practice to sweep away our thousands of illusions. If the awakened mind shows its compassion and opens up for us the treasure store that we may bring into our lives the wonderful diamond teachings. That sounds a little odd, but I think that's correct if the awakened mind shows its compassion and opens up for us the treasure store, then we may bring into our lives the wonderful diamond teachings. So we're being asked, how can we overcome the fear of birth and death and arrive at a state that is indestructible as a diamond? What way can we direct our practice to sweep away our thousands of illusions. You know, the fear of birth and death is um, at the bottom of every fear, I believe. Um, It's sometimes been said that um, it's not so much that we fear death as that we feel fear extinction. And it's not unusual for people practicing uh, hard at certain places within their practice to really run into the fear of, if I go any further, I'll disappear. What will happen to me? Which is an indication of how much we rely on the idea of a fixed and permanent self. It's what got us here. It's what we've trusted and relied on our whole life. And I might add, no one's suggesting that there isn't such a thing as a self, a self that we know and have a feel for. 
But again, I ask, what is it? What are the boundaries of it? What's beneath the surface of it? You know, we can live our whole life. If you want to look at our mind as the ocean. In the waves, just surfing along. And think that is the whole of the ocean. And that is our mind. That's what our mind does. It produces waves. Some are little, some are big. Sometimes the, the ocean surface is quiet. Sometimes it's thunderous. And it doesn't take much sitting to realize that, to discover that that is our mind. But it's also very captivating, extraordinarily captivating. And so to, to go beyond the surface is no simple thing. It takes a long time sometimes in Zazen to be willing just to sit with our mind, just to sit with the waves of our mind and not go anyplace, not look for something. It's so ordinary that it seems to demand that we actually do something. We should be doing something. And yet the practice defines, asks us, directs us what to do. And all the practices are really pretty simple. Uh, Even koan study, which requires a deep thought and understanding and insight uh, in a different way that a breath practice or shikantaza may actually is very, very simple. To see into a koan is actually very simple. The only thing that stops us from seeing into a koan is the waves. What we do as bodhisattvas is simply help all beings to liberation. We're very patient. In one sense, you know, beings are infinite. So we just work within our life and capacity. Liberation in the Mahayana sense is awakening. In the practical sense, we just help beings. Help them according to the specific context we find ourselves in. To be awake. To fulfill their humanness. But in many other cases, to fulfill our humanness. In helping anything fulfill its wholeness. Of course, there are endless forms as we go about our work of simply helping beings come forth in their completeness. And that is the practice of being awake. You know, just in the most ordinary sense, as soon as we 
kind of internalize that, we're changing our self-focus from ourself to everything else with a clear intent. And I always add, we're not leaving ourselves out of the picture. I remember, I'm not going to remember the exact poem, but a very famous poem uh, where, by a, might have been by Basho, where he lays something out of as it is, and he notes his shadow as he's in the picture too. And I remember the first time I saw that, I wish I could quote it better for you. I was shocked. He's there. There must be a problem. But there's something far more subtle about him being there than a distinct sense of himself separate from anything else. Of course he's there. Aren't you, relatively speaking, always there? Of course. So the Buddha said to Subhuti, this is how the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas master their thinking. This is what is always before us. It's never not before us. How do we use our words, our thoughts, and our deeds to master our thoughts, our words, our deeds? In other words, how do we use this karmic world and all that is contained herein to master our own thoughts that we may walk the bodhisattva path? In a short sutra in the Pali Canon, the Buddha says, the mind is luminous. Only it is covered by adventitious defilements from without. Luminous. Is indefinable, so I'll (laughs) clumsily try and say something about it. is the clarity that comes from seeing all things as things without being things. Got it? (laughs) It's... uh, Well, maybe I should just leave it at that. In in one sense, it's nothing special. Um, I mean, it is what it is what it is. But it isn't anything. (laughs) So, (laughs) what can I say? So, if this mind is luminous... We don't see it because of the defilements. The defilements from without. And from without really means from ourself, from our usual way of thinking about the mind, from what we've adopted as our mind. So one way to understand the bodhisattva path is to help ourselves and others discover 
and be free of this adventitious defilements from without. How? The Buddha responds to to this. The sons and daughters of good families want to give rise to the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind. What should they rely on and what should they do to master the thinking? The Buddha says, in a very specific way and manner, he points to a thought, a particular thought, a particular way of being, of living, as to what should be relied on and can be relied on. Remember the question here. How can we overcome the fear of birth and death and arrive at the state that is indestructible as a diamond? How can we give rise to the highest, most fulfilled, awakened mind? What should, the, what should we rely on? And what should we do with our thinking? That's what we're talking about here. So in response to how, the Buddha points to how the bodhisattva, mahasattvas, great bodhisattvas, master their thinking. In other words, how a great bodhisattva proceeds with their thought, their intention, their purpose. How should you and I live if we wish to help ourselves and others? Now, I spoke in the opening talk of exactly this, of doing my best, and note that, in other words, practicing, and practice, as you know, sometimes and sometimes we've totally forgotten ourselves and everything in between. So we practice our zazen, our liturgy, each of the ways that we practice here. I described one way that I practice here as part of my job, as my work, as my practice. But it doesn't matter what it is. It's, and it's not that it's all practice. It's all a deep and profound awareness that we're responsible for each thing and thought and word that we do and to practice as best we can to be as close as we can to that. What we do, what we say and to be responsible for that. And so easy to talk. I mean, we talk all the time. So easy to think. We think all the time. So easy to, to do. We do all the time. And it may sound like an impossible task to do this in a way that a great bodhisattva would do it. Do you understand that you are that great bodhisattva? That's, that's a given. That's the base. 
That's at the heart of practicing your breath, of practicing mu. Practicing just this moment of awareness. So the Buddha points to a thought, a particular thought, a particular way of being, of living, as to what can be relied on. How may we overcome the fear of birth and death and arrive at a state that is indestructible as a diamond? In other words, you proceed with your thoughts, your intentions, your purpose, and we live out of the intent to help ourselves and others. In a way, I'm saying that every thought, every deed, Every word is designed for that and seemingly impossible way to proceed. But it doesn't say, there's no measurement here. It doesn't say you have to get 100% on the exam. There is no exam. We just do our best to do this. We keep coming back to the intention. The intention holds us. And the Buddha says, however many species of living beings there are, and then goes on to list born from eggs, from the womb, from moisture, spontaneously, etc., etc., where they have form or do not have form, where they have perceptions or do not have perceptions, where it cannot be said of them that they have perceptions, or that they don't, etc., etc., etc. We lead all these beings to nirvana so that they can be liberated. It's not just talking about human beings here. It's not just talking about you and I. It's talking about everything that every thing formation that we customarily live out of. Thing formation. So that does seem to be everyone and everything with no one left out in that description. So again I ask, how should you and I live if we wish to live the life of a bodhisattva? Which is addressing It is addressing how can we overcome the fear of birth and death and arrive at a state that is indestructible as a diamond. It's answering that question. And I think when we bring this question to the center point of living our life, not as something ancillary, not as in place of living our life, but as the focus of living our life, then it is a, a, a very functional pivot point. We begin to take in the fact, and there's many ways to express this, that our life is not about us, even though we are here. And seemingly every thought that we have is about us. And there doesn't seem to be any way not to have that thought. And yet, we can have that thought about us, whatever that thought is, selfish, self-defined, it's about me, so on and so forth, and still turn it towards how do I live as a bodhisattva. It's not a problem. 
if we're aware of our thoughts. Well, how do we become aware of our thoughts? Well, that's, I think, pretty obvious. We start with a thought. A thought, one thought. Pick a thought, pick a thought, any thought. (laughs) Yeah, the thought is going to be about me, right? You don't like that thought? Pick another thought. The thought's going to be about me. And we see that. We actually see it. Maybe we're not satisfied about our seeing. Maybe I've had too many thoughts now. You asked me to pick a thought, and I've had 16 thoughts about picking a thought. Doesn't matter. Pick, pick that thought. And stare at it. And then let it go. Unless it's a useful thought to your purpose. We're being asked to cultivate a particular way of living, of thinking, as an antidote to the suffering and pain as an antidote to living a life of futility and helplessness. If it's one thing I've learned in this life, we are never helpless. There may be circumstances that bind our options, but they're all external to me. As long as I'm alive, as long as I have the ability to practice, which means to think to some extent, I'm getting older, the thinking isn't as clear, but so what? I'm getting older physically, losing ability, so what? We can be clear on what our purpose is, what we're doing. And the Buddha is suggesting a very specific purpose, to cultivate that particular way of living, of thinking, as an antidote to suffering and pain, as an antidote to living a life of futility and helplessness. He asks us to give rise to the thoughts of the Bodhisattva, to cultivate that. We're doing that here as best we can, but there's much more than here. So the practice we do points to this. The liturgy we do invites us to see what we cannot see with just our usual eyesight, because what we see with our usual eyesight is self-reflective and just waves, right? Just a mind doing its mind thing. But it can't be taken in. It can be mind-melded. I don't know where that thought came from, but it can be entwined as our being. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All all bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. Maha prajna paramita. Do do we hear the dedications to the chants that we do? Each chant we do has specific dedications. And when taken as a whole, it comes alive. You know, we do the same thing over over and over and over and over and over and over. And it begins to entwine us, begins to create something in us that we may not have even known was there. And that spark can be, can be nourished. It has to be nourished and become a flame 
And that flame can become a fire. And that fire can become a roaring fire, which manifests the vows that we take. The great heart of perfect wisdom we cultivate, both directly through Zazen, but also in consideration of how we live, the thoughts we think, the deeds we do, the words we speak, we're cultivating karma. Our heart, our mind, we're cultivating that. Every step, every thought. Consider the habitual thoughts when we are hurt or defend ourselves. Does this thought, this protective manner of being, which is deep and profound and habitual, cultivate our trust in our faith in the Dharma? Does it help? Does it actually help me? Our patterns of habitual thought usually direct our attention away from pain. Who wants pain? Is that direction of attention ultimately helpful in sweeping away the thousands of delusions? Have we thought about that in our avoidance? You know, I think most of the thoughts we have are not about avoidance, except in a more subtle way. They're just numb or asleep, automatic. You know, we use the word condition, but what does that mean? They're just, they just, I'm just, what my mind is doing. Is that helpful? And sweeping away thousands of delusions. Now, Zazen, we speak of forgetting ourselves. Do we think of this not as an accomplishment, but as a cultivation? So we work with our breath, and we're cultivating. Cultivating, working with, inspecting, being open to. Whatever comes up in our mind during Zazen, that's the practice of a deep and profound awareness. Perhaps we have an expectation of how that should be. Well, that's an interesting thought. Is it helpful? The implication here, perhaps subtly, is that we're bringing forth, cultivating, a fulfillment of an aspiration that has been percolating for many lifetimes. That's subtly what's being said. Many lifetimes. And now, here, in you and I, this aspiration may take a particular shape, your your shape, your mind, and come to life in intent and in action. Consider that. I mean, there are so many human beings on this planet and so many human beings who've lived and so many more who will live. You know, in that way, we're like ants. You know, I think ants are the most common life form on, that's not plants on this planet. 
hundreds of billions and billions of ants. Us. So we walk over an anthill and crush the ants. Well, life is like that. Soon you'll be dead, soon enough. Here, gone. So what? But you're alive now. Is it just a matter of running around? Another ant? Or something that's in your life that is indeed precious? That is indeed beyond a little antness? But not immediately apparent. It's there, but it's not immediately apparent. We have to work, it's called practice, to see what's beneath our antness. So the Buddha says, in this bodhisattva path, which we vow to liberate all beings, that when the innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings has become liberated, we do not in truth think that a single being has been liberated. Why is this so? If Sabuti, a bodhisattva, holds onto the idea that a self, a person, a living being, or a lifespan exists, that person is not a true bodhisattva. So we're being asked to cultivate an aspiration to see into this carefully constructed being that we have assembled. You know, my, my grandson is, uh, um, I don't know, he's about nine, and he's pure engineer mind, and he assembles these incredibly complex, um, what do you call these, uh, pieces that you put together, uh, Legos. And these are not the Legos of my childhood. (laughs) They are, you know. So we have to buy him Legos that say, you know, from 14 to 20 or something like that. And then he goes about for the next three days putting together this incredibly complex machine that looks fantastic, that has many things that it does. And I say, "What, what actually is this? And he looks at me and says, Grandpa... You don't understand. It's not what it's. It's not a this. It's it's doing it. It's making it live. Oh, okay, thank you, Zen Master. <laughs> he gets it. I want to label it and know what it is. He wants to do it, and it's in him. It's what he does. So can we cultivate an aspiration to see into the carefully constructed being we have assembled? Sometimes people complain, well, I'm doing Zazen, nothing much is happening. But what is our aspiration? We can do Zazen, but what is our aspiration? Do we have a clear sense of why we're doing what we're doing? Which is not a test that you now ask yourself, do I have a clear sense? Well, it's not clear enough, I must be failing. It's, a, it's an investigation that you're being asked 
to look at. So again, the Buddha has said, we must lead all these different beings to nirvana so they can be liberated. But he's also said that if the Bodhisattva holds on to the idea of a self, a person, a living being or a lifespan that exists, a person's not a true Bodhisattva. So here we have it. I mean... Clearly, as people with constructed selves, we know how to live, or we work at living. That's the self. Lots of stuff to be involved in. We've got things out there to frighten us. We've got political things. We've got a president who... um, is what that person is. Um, and then we have a life, this life. And how do we hold this? How do we act in response to a bodhisattva vows? How do we respond in a way that does not promulgate the same karmic response that this particular president and his buds are operating out of. How do we do that? And yet not ignore the harm, the intense suffering that is being created. And that's just one aspect. We could easily look at our fears of this virus that's going around. I'm fearful of it. I have some understanding of what can happen medically to people in acute respiratory failure, for which there's really no treatment. But we don't say that. I mean, there is supportive treatment, but so what? It's not easy to practice in a steady, ongoing manner and at the same time be willing not to settle into a fixed way of understanding ourself in practice. Buddha nature is change, as long as you don't fixate on that definition. There's lots of change going on. Change out there, change within the Sangha and the Mountains and Rivers Order. I'll speak a bit to that Sunday. change in the politics. What is our intention, our vow, our commitment that does not change? Intention. It's everything. It's everything. So the practice of the Diamond Sutra is to ally your Align your purpose to the Dharma, to practice for the purpose of waking up, of addressing suffering, of radiating compassion. 
unskillfully. We're all unskillful. We're all human beings fumbling around. That's good enough. If the intention is there, that's good enough. In a gentle, non-obsessive or attached way, we can practice in this way. We can all turn to awareness, to compassion, to this path. There's an intent, and the intent, again, is everything. So I'm asking you to, to look at that, to be clear in your intent, because it's so easy to drift away. There are so many things to pull us, interesting books to read, online, and my reader. Endless interesting things. There are interesting ways to be involved, to stake ourselves on our definitions of being on the different colors and genders and sexes we are. And these are ours to decide if they're important to stake ourselves, to put our energy and to put our time. That's intention. That's ours. Within the context of the Dharma. Always within the context of the Dharma. Well, do we understand what the Dharma is? Do you understand that when I speak this way, I don't speak of results? Results are karmic. But they always reflect intent in our actions. Not in any way that our relative self-centered tendencies may anticipate. Or in even ways that we know and can measure. But they do reflect it. They do reflect it. They reflect our heart. Thus our spirit becomes alive when we live, when we're clear in our intention, as best we can. Our intention, without making it a thing, another trap, without an expectation or assumed outcomes. Because that's not what your intention rests on. It doesn't rest on the outcome. Somehow, the events of my life and the feelings I have about these events bring me to want to think and feel and act in a particular way. I'm quoting another Zen teacher said this, because that's what's happening here in the most positive way. That's what can happen here. The events of my life and the feelings I have about these events bring me to want to think and feel and act in a particular way. I don't actually say who I quoted, but I think it's Norman Fisher. And so there arises a commitment that makes our intention visible and palpable and functional and affects everybody we meet in some way, often in ways they don't even know it. But it affects them. 
commitment and affirming of my intention. I affirm it in my heart. Do you hear? It's your heart. What do you affirm? Without criticism, without self-criticism, without self-hatred, just be stupid in the best possible sense of being smart. Don't add anything to it. And so a commitment in our attention becomes a personal vow. I spoke of invoking, of bringing it forth. So it's work. We have to do that. I have to do my prostrations every day because I forget if I don't. I don't think I forget, but I do. I mean, I can recall it and connect it, but it's at a distance now. So I have to do it every day. I have to sit every day. I have to do whatever I have to do. I'm just talking about me here. To stay clear in my intention. And I'm pleading with you to discern your intention and to do what you have to do. I identify with my commitment as myself. No matter what happens, lifetime after lifetime, which I can't know. But that's my commitment. We must lead all beings to nirvana so that they can be liberated. Yet this innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings, when they have become liberated, do not, in fact, think that a single being has been liberated. Why is this so? So there's the edge. We're dedicating our life, our what we know about ourselves, what our intention is, to the best of our ability. The word I often use myself is my clumsiness, my quirkiness, whatever it is that I've got. To liberating all beings. I'm putting it personally because I'm inviting you to put it personally. And yet there are no beings. That's what we're discovering. No beings as a solid, fixed thing. And so we live out of a relative mind and a body. With all of the accumulated karma, with all of the specific neuroses that you and I have. And that's what we have. It's enough. We don't need anything else. It's plenty. I have enough health. I have my body, my gender, my prejudices, my 10,000 delusions that make up my concrete, living, breathing sense of myself. And ultimately when I or you look deeply at these aspects of myself, they can't be found. You know, that's a challenge. Find it. Show it to me. I can, I, 
cannot be found. That's the cultivation of a bodhisattva. To know that I am truly non-self. To know that I am truly non-self amidst the world of so many selves. Doesn't really deeply conceptually work. But boy, it is the fundamental truth. And seeing this, to whatever extent we have, and practicing this, and never fully grasping this, still we can feel, we can sense, we can know, in air quotes, that it is our true being, this selfless self. And so we wake up each morning, feeling like it or not, loving and dedicated to this unknowable, but right before us path. Right here, before us. It's never not before us. That's the teachings of the Diamond Sutra. Thanks for listening. Do you have physical challenges to visiting Zen Mountain Monastery or Fire Lotus Temple? The Diamond Net is a group of Mountains and Rivers Order students who are available to support your practice. We provide Dharma and other support to Sangha members facing life challenges such as illness or mobility issues. If you would like to visit the monastery or the Zen Center but need some physical help, someone from the Diamond Net can assist you. For information, email diamondnet at mro.org or visit our webpage at zmm.org and look under the Programs menu.